Hey y'all, it's Brian Rosefield. Just reminding you, if you're enjoying this content, we would love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe. Tell a friend about the Greatest Games Podcast. We would really appreciate it. Hello and welcome to the Greatest Games Podcast brought to you by 816 Basketball. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Rosefield, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris de Blasio. Thank you, Brian. Pleasure to be here on the Greatest Games Podcast. The chance for us to catch up with basketball coaches from around the country and have them tell us about their greatest game. As always, it can be their time as a head coach, an assistant coach, a JV coach, a CYO coach, just whatever game they consider to be their greatest. Chris, you know, the word that I don't often use, I'm going to go ahead and use it now, niche. We are a niche podcast, and we now have found a niche in the Ivy League. So we're going today to Cambridge, Massachusetts, the assistant basketball coach, one of the assistants for Harvard, Brian Eskildson. Welcome to the Greatest Games Podcast. I appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, we are. We're heading deep into the Ivy. We had uh, Chris Mongilion a few uh, few weeks ago from Princeton University. Now we're going to Harvard. These are schools Brian and I aren't even allowed to drive through campus. Uh, don't don't worry. I, but I do appreciate that you guys are upgrading. You know, week to week, going from Princeton. Oh, I, knew, I knew there was yeah. going to be an Ivy dig in there. I knew there was going to be that. And yeah, we'll get a Yale man next. You know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this connection was made by the great Bobby Siegel. So we appreciate Bobby. A little shout out on the air. Got us in touch with Brian. So again, Brian, glad to have you here on the show. We're looking forward to learn a little bit more about you tonight. Do not give Bobby any credit. Don't give Bobby any credit. Bobby's a great guy. I don't know uh, what the problem you have with Bobby. Your definition, my definition of the word great are <laughs> very. <laughs> Brian told some good Bobby, a few good Bobby Siegel story before, but we'll, we, we won't get into that too much. Yeah, I, I, I think the FCC is listening, so we've probably got to quiet all that. <laughs> we will put that on the Patreon once we're up and running <laughs> on Patreon. So the exclusive content. Well, uh, coach, why don't you take us through your career in basketball and, and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, you know, I, uh, I, I have probably a, an unusual uh, background and, and path. I, I went to the University of Tennessee and I was a practice player for Coach Summit with the Lady Vols, uh, which, you know, you don't get a whole lot on, on the men's side, at least uh, that, that, ba- that, that uh, background. Uh, I, was, I was there, fortunately, when Candace Parker was there. So winning two national championships was, was you know, incredible experience. And from there, I, I kind of looked at going a lot of different angles and um, fortunately, Joe Pasternak at University of New Orleans was completely bereft of help and a budget and needed any help that he could get. Uh, and so when I, you know, emailed and, and mailed literally all 360, however many it was, Division One coaches, he was the first person and, and maybe one of five people to respond. Uh, and, and so it's, it's kind of a, an interesting story when he called and he said, I'm looking for some help, but I can't pay you anything. When can you come down here? I was in, in Knoxville, Tennessee, and, and I said, I can be there tomorrow if you want. And, uh, you know, he, he basically said, well, come on down. And uh, I, went, I went down kind of on a whim, uh, just thinking, you know, this is maybe my way into a, a men's basketball opportunity. Uh, as you guys can imagine, you know, working with Coach Summit and, and the Lady Vols, you're, you're going to have some opportunities in the women's game. But never did I think that I could have a, an opportunity in the men's game 
coming from, you know, not being a player, not being a manager, not being, you know, an AAU coach, a high school coach, what have you. Uh, so I, I kind of just, just took it and, and ran with it. And uh, as I told you guys earlier is really the, the best experience I could possibly have uh, w- when you're at an opportunity like it was in, in 2009 at new Orleans, where there's really nothing there or no one there. And, and uh, you get your hands in a lot of different uh, areas and you really get to learn. Uh, and I think sometimes if you get your way in on the ground floor at an organization and no disrespect, but you know, the Kentuckys, the Dukes, the North Carolinas of the world, they got a million people. So you don't necessarily get to really get your hands dirty and, and learn. You're maybe specialized in one way or another. Um, and so that was really my path uh, at New Orleans is being a jack of all trades who could, you know, try to, try to learn it all, whether it's travel, whether it was scheduling, video, managing gear, budget, you know, whatever it may be. So, yeah, I, I took a, maybe a, a, an unusual path when you guys, I'm sure, are interviewing other college coaches. Most of them are former players or managers. Uh, I, I'm kind of the outlier. Uh, Brian, I'll say this, you know, everybody's path is different. Everybody's path is unique. And, you know, one of the, you know, more popular coaches in the country, a guy we know and had on the show, Frank Martin, he started off as a bouncer, you know, <laughs> so it's not going to get any, you know, the guy was a bouncer and, and a substitute teacher and then worked his way up to being a high school teacher and now all the way to the SEC. So yeah. you never know where life's going to take you. For sure. For sure. Yeah. It, I'm really fortunate that although I I didn't have the background as a player or, or as a manager, or, you know, my, my dad wasn't a hall of famer or anything like that. When you work for somebody like Pat summit, you know, she commands respect from everybody in this business. So when you've got her and, and, and that program on your resume, you at least listen, you know, you're, you're intrigued. Do you want to know, you know, maybe I can steal some of her secrets or some of her wisdom. Uh, and, and so without that, I never would have had a chance. Uh, but I, I was really lucky that, that I had that, you know, on my resume that at least people were intrigued enough to want to know, you know, what was it about UT Lady Vols basketball that, that was so impressive or, and so successful? I'm super curious about that, those 300 and so emails or letters that were going out that period of time. Like, I, I really want to know, like, how long did it take you to send out those, those letters or those emails? What was it about you that you just had that belief? Like, yes, I mean, it's what it sounds like somebody's going to get back with me and I'm going to jump on the first call that be drive the next day to go do whatever it takes to get in this business. I'd love to hear more about that whole process. Yeah, you know, as I said, uh, when when you're working for the best at the time, the best women's program in the country, uh, you're going to have some opportunities in women's basketball. I, I could have been a GA, I could have been an assistant coach, I could have been, you know, I, I would have had an easier path maybe on the women's side, just given the incredible network of, of UT women's coaches that there are around the country. But I, I kind of felt like there may be a ceiling at that level. And, and I just personally had more interest in the men's game. Uh, and I didn't have any of those connections. I mean, I, I really didn't know Bruce Pearl or any of the assistants on the men's side at Tennessee. I knew some of the, 
the players and managers, but didn't know any of the staff members. And so I'm, I'm kind of flying blind. And the only way you can make a connection is to, you know, get outside your comfort zone and, and call people, email people, mail people. And at the time, the best way I thought to do that was just to send my, you know, letter and, and resume out and see who, who answered. And, and that was kind of on the advice of some of the women's coaches at, at Tennessee who said, you know, there, there may be somebody looking for some help. You never know. And they were right. Uh, and, and as I mentioned, you know, I, I sent a letter to Coach K. I sent a letter to Roy Williams. Those guys weren't answering. They, they got all the help in the world they need. Uh, but, you know, somebody like Joe Pasternak at the University of New Orleans, you know, maybe a smaller school, smaller budget, don't have as many managers. They need all the help they can get. Uh, and so I was really fortunate that, you know, they, they needed that help. And, and I was free, basically. I, I was... I was ready to, to volunteer, no pun intended. Uh, Coach, uh, he, Brian asked you that question. I sort of have a question to go along with that. So he calls you up. You say, I can be there the next day. Right now, Knoxville, New Orleans, what's it, about seven, eight hours, nine hours? Uh, yeah, Probably. a little more, but I think something around that. Okay. Do, what do you say when you call your parents? Did you call Do you remember that phone call? Did you call dad and say, dad, I'm driving to New Orleans tomorrow to interview for a job? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good, it's a good question. My, my dad was a lawyer, it, it, you know, is a lawyer, uh, went to University of Virginia for law school. And, and I had actually at the time taken some LSAT classes. I had been going down the path of maybe going to law school. Maybe that's my, I always knew I wanted to get into sports in some way, shape or form and, and basketball specifically but maybe that's on the front office, the agency, the coaching side, I didn't really know. And uh, when I told him, he was kind of like, you know, <laughs> really, what, what the heck are you, you doing? Uh, but at the same time, I gave my dad credit. He always knew that um, when I had a passion for something, when I have a passion for something, I, I've tended to make it work. And he could tell when I told him that, that I was passionate about it, that I really was invested in it. Uh, and so, you know, I, I thank him for, he was very supportive and, you know, basically said, well, we'll give it your best and I'll be here for you if you need me. So, yeah, I think, I think anything, uh, you know, he was certainly surprised, but uh, uh, I'm thankful that, you know, everybody needs some support uh, to, to get where they need to get to. And, and he's certainly somebody who's, supported me along the way well you have made waves in the ivy league looking at doing some research for this show jeff goodman ranks you as the, in the top five of assistant coaches in the ivy league so my question now is what makes you or but what makes a good assistant coach yeah, I, I think that's a, a wife who can pay off Jeff Goodman. <laughs> I think that's the answer. No, I, I, I have no idea about any, any of those, those things. But uh, I think when you work at a winning program, uh, when you play at a winning program, you know, success and accolades are going to follow you. So that's something that was really important to me as I made my way through uh, and, and early on in my profession, I, I wasn't always winning. And I think that took a toll on me. And I, I really made it an emphasis to go to a winning program. And I've had opportunities since I've been here to, to maybe leave to some different places. But winning is really fun. Uh, 
I mean, you guys know it. You work so hard at it. Uh, when, when you're with good people and you're winning, whether it's championships or, or having great seasons, not all great seasons are going to end in a championship. You know, it, it's, it's tough to leave that, that type of a, a program. And uh, so I think, you know, to answer your question, when, you, when you're at a great school, great program with a great head coach, that's the key to success. I mean, there's nothing that I'm doing that's any special. It's I've aligned myself with, I think, one of the best coaches in, in college basketball, certainly one of the best coaches in, in Ivy League history. And that's going to make me look really good. <laughs> yes, winning is certainly better than losing. That is for sure. That is, although, I mean, and winning is winning is tremendously hard work. But I always, when, when, whenever you're losing or you're part of a bad season, I think people assume you're not working as hard. And I'm like, no, no, you're working 10 times harder when you're on like an eight game losing streak. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> I, I think that is a, a very common misperception amongst, you know, maybe the average fan. They don't know how hard just winning one game is. Well, that's what I always say. I've said it's that like just one game. Fighting to the death for <laughs> one game. And, and whether you have talent or no talent, you're still doing the same work. You're still grinding in the film room. You're still practicing, you know, uh, however many times a week, you're still getting in the training room. You're still uh, doing the recovery for, for, you know, the, in the ice bath, if you're the player, you're still, you know, doing all the things necessary. Some teams just are, have more talent. Some teams are just maybe better coached. Some teams get a better whistle, but the work is the same. And yeah, it's, it's hard to win, you know, and, and that's why I think, you know, one of the things that Coach Amaker really emphasizes here at Harvard is, is having fun, whether that's the staff identity or the players, you work too hard at it not to have fun. And, and so, you know, you, you want to be around other coaches and other, you know, co-workers that you like and you enjoy being with. And, and likewise for the players, you want to be with good players and, and good kids who you want to work with. And, uh, I think you guys know, just given your background, you, you spend so much time with coaches and players. You don't want to be around a bunch of jerks. I mean, whether you're <laughs> winning or losing, that's just not going to be fun. Well, we know you're on the show to talk about a fun game. So let's go ahead and hear about your greatest game. Take us in the arena. Give us all the background knowledge that you can remember and take us in for your greatest game, right? Okay. Well, I think the, the most uh, important thing to think about when the Ivy, when you're talking about Ivy League basketball, is it, it is very different than any other Division One conference. And you're talking about a league that doesn't have athletic scholarships, only you know need-based financial aid. Uh, for the longest time, up until maybe I guess four or five years ago, it was the only Division One league that didn't have a conference tournament. So what that means is the regular season winner would get the Ivy League automatic bid to the NCAA tournament. So they even used to call it actually the 14-game Ivy tournament. That was what they <laughs> called the regular season because there was no tournament. Um, and what happened in the old days is if there was a tie at the end of the year, two teams are tied, say Harvard and Yale, there was a one-game playoff. And – it would never be at Harvard or Yale. Obviously that would give one team the advantage. So they would choose some neutral site. So in 2015, Harvard and Yale are tied. Uh, they're, they're tied for first place. And so they do the, the one game playoff 
and it was at Penn. And, you know, for anybody who's gone to play at Penn, the, the Palestra, it's one of the best places to see a high school game, a college game. I mean, it's just an amazing gym with, with unbelievable tradition and history. So, you know, Harvard, Yale, that probably the biggest rivalry in, in, in Ivy League sports, whether that's basketball, football, you know, all throughout sports to play that game for the Ivy league title in the palestra. I mean, it really doesn't get better than that. Uh, and, and uh, you know, Harvard at the time in 2015 had just, we had just won our fifth regular season title in a row. Uh, we had been to, to three straight Ivy league uh, or excuse me, we've been to three NCAA tournaments. So for that senior class, they were looking to go four for four. Uh, and, and you guys know, working with student athletes, if you can go four for four, winning your league every year, going to the tournament every year, especially at a, at a low to mid-major conference, I mean, that's, that's awesome. Uh, and so the, you know, kind of the, the stage was, was really set for, for an unbelievable game. And, and, and even more so for the Ivy league, for, for Harvard in particular, you know, I, I don't know if you guys know this, but. Harvard had never won an Ivy League title before Coach Amaker got to Harvard. Really? You think about the tradition and the history of a school like Harvard, been around forever. The Ivy League's been mm -hmm. around forever. They had never won an Ivy League title in men's basketball. And in 2011, they had won a regular season title, but they lost in a, that, that one-game playoff. Uh, they lost to Princeton at the buzzer, kind of on a last-second shot. So there was a little bit of history in terms of Harvard – kind of getting to that point and but not quite getting into the NCAA tournament which which made you know maybe the, the pressure to to make the tournament uh, a little greater um so that that's kind of the, just a little bit of the background in, in terms of our team uh it was a very senior heavy team we had a kid Wes Saunders who who had been the Ivy League player of the year a, a year earlier as a junior uh, and, and of course, I'm biased, but our, our whole staff felt like he was the best player in the league. And earlier in that week, leading up to that Ivy League playoff game, Justin Sears, who was Yale's best player, was named player of the year. And so, of course, that was kind of a big, you know, a, a big point of contention for our players and our and our coaching staff. Uh, so so anyway, you know, we hop on the bus, we we head down to. To, to Pennsylvania to, to play at, at Penn, play at the Palestra. And, uh, you know, the routine when you guys, you know, when you get to the game, you do your shoot around, you do your, uh, you know, you do your pregame meal three or four hours before the game. And one of the things that Coach Amaker, I've always found he, he's really good at this. He, he always gives time for the players to, to have a word, you know, you you do your scouting report, you do your personnel, your film, this, that, and the other, everyone does it. And then coach before, you know, we kind of bring it up and, and, and kind of have the, uh, the, the team break or huddle, whatever you guys call it. He always asks, you guys got anything, you know, he's giving the players an opportunity to say what's on their mind. And for the most part throughout the season, you know, no one really says anything. It's just kind of, no, we're good. And, and you keep it moving. Uh, but but this was notable because the the best player on our team, Wes Saunders, who's who's typically a, a really quiet player in this this time frame, he speaks up. And so when when he raises his hand, 
you know, all of us coaches are kind of looking around like, you know, what the hell's going on? This should be interesting. Uh, and he's, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the edited version, but he says, there's no freaking way we're, we're losing this game. I, I don't care what it takes. There's no way we're losing a Yale. Harvard beats Yale. That's just the way the story was written. It's palpable. I can already touch. I can already taste the trophy. And so, the, you know, the, the first thing I'm thinking is like goosebumps, right? You know, your best player, he's given that Rudy speech. He's given that, you know, you're, you're ready to run through a wall. That's, that's what I'm thinking. There's no way in hell we're losing this game. Then the second thing as I'm getting back to the hotel room before we, you know, head to the bus and head to the game is, did he just use the word palpable? (laughs) (laughs) You know, like I I am way out of my element here. Like, I don't even know what that is. I'm one of our other assistant coaches, Christian Webster had played at Harvard. So I'm like, what does that even mean? And since then, you know, John Rothstein uses that word all the time, but I, you know, it was just funny that he used that in kind of a heartfelt speech, but uh, you know, we, we certainly went into the game really confident knowing that our best player had that mindset, right. That, you know, we're, we're just not losing. Uh, but, but anyway, you know, it was a, I, I can't really speak to the game in terms of its uh, prettiness or, or, or watchability. It was an ugly game. Right? It was a low scoring game, you know, a very gritty, um, you know, defense first game. And, and I, the, what I really remember was in the second half, Wes Saunders, our best player just took over. He, he put us on his back. Um, he, he had a really crucial and one with about, you know, 30, 40 seconds left in the game. Uh, but, but, you know, the game had, as I said, went back and forth. And at the end of the game, uh, we're tied with the ball with about 20 seconds to go. Shot clock is off. So obviously we're thinking, you know, take the last shot, certainly don't give them a chance to come back down, uh, you know, and make a shot if we end up missing. So we're going to give the ball to our best player. Wes Saunders got the ball at the top of the key and he's kind of dancing, doing his, you know, move, just kind of wasting time. And, And he starts to drive with about 10 seconds left. And you guys know as coaches, you're like, whoa, that's, that's way too much time. You know, you don't want to get a shot up with, eight, nine, 10 seconds left, that's going to give the other team an opportunity to run back the other way. And, and there's actually a picture in our locker room of that moment. And you see multiple players, multiple coaches kind of like hand palms turned up, like what the hell is he doing? <laughs> uh, but you know, you, you can't script everything. And anyway, what, you know, West drives, right. And he gets kind of uh, he collapses two or three defenders and he pitches it back to our senior captain, a kid named Steve Madumasi, who six uh, eight kid from from Cameroon, who had been a uh, a really rock solid four or five man for us for four years, and uh, and Steve kind of filled behind on this pitch back with seven or eight seconds left, and just drained a, a you know an eighteen nineteen twenty footer something like that uh, with about seven seconds left, and and it it was really fulfilling as a coach because that was a shot that Steve had practiced maybe 5,000 times at Harvard. He was somebody who always had worked to extend his range. And when you see somebody, you know, make that shot at the biggest moment and the biggest part of his career, you know, as a coach, that's, that's really special. And, you know, he wasn't necessarily a high volume shooter, but he took that with incredible confidence 
Uh, and so, you know, he sit, he, he hits it. We're up by two with six seconds left. Yale comes racing back down the other way uh, with, with no time left on the clock and, and their best perimeter player, Javier Dern shoots it, shoots maybe a six footer with, with uh, two or three seconds left and it just barely rolls out. Uh, and I always remember this because I, we show this in recruiting a, a lot of times when kids are on campus, uh, the, the announcer says, it's Harvard, it's Harvard, Harvard wins. And, and the storm, you know, the, the fans storm the court and that class went four for four, that class beat Yale at the Palestra, really just an awesome college environment. And, uh, and then on a, maybe on a macro scale, I think that was really one of the major reasons why the Ivy league decided it was time for a tournament, a full fledged tournament, mm -hmm. that, that crowd, that game, that reaction from, from fans and, and, and spectators uh, led them to, to, you know, the next couple of years start in the Ivy league tournament. So that was an incredible moment for me as a, as a first year coach at Harvard to, to be a part of that. And coach, you took us through, I mean, step-by-step. Step. I, I watched the highlights here, and, and this will be posted in the chat and everything. And you talk about the shot uh, that the kid hit. What's it? Um, Steve Mondumasi. Did you – so Saunders, your best player, Ivy League player, had 22 in that game, had a second half. I mean, he was all over the highlights here for the second half. Did you guys think – at any point when he starts to drive that, did you know that he was the type of player willing to give up the ball for, to the open guy? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think as a sophomore, Wes wouldn't have made that play. You know, Wes, I think Wes scored something like 18, 19 a game as a sophomore, and he was just trying to get buckets. Like he, you know, he was good as a sophomore. Don't get me wrong, but he evolved – as he got older to not just being just the scorer, but to be a playmaker. And, and, and I think, you know, coach Amaker was an all American at Duke. He, he was an incredible point guard and more of a, a pass first guy. And he's had a really good eye for helping that type of player and, and kind of uh, nurturing them, helping them along, figure out when to pick their spots and when to be, you know, when to make the right play. And sometimes it's, you know, making the right play is not for you. It's for somebody else. And, and so, you know, that had been harped on with, with West throughout his, his time at Harvard. Uh, and so we knew a hundred percent that he was going to make the right play, you know, like, like LeBron did in, in game five the other night with, with Danny Green, now, obviously West isn't near in that category, but West was somebody who was always going to make the right play. And uh, I, th I think that's why guys really liked playing with him. You know, you, you guys have been around, you see, best players who we we've had it too, or, or, you know, you could be the best player in the league, best player in your team, but guys don't want to play with you. And that was certainly not the case with Wes guys always wanted to play with him because they knew whether it was him scoring or making the play for somebody else, he was going to do what was best for the team. And so uh, while on one hand, I was, I was nervous at the time thinking that he may have gone too early in the shot clock. Uh, there was never a doubt that he was going to, you know, do, you know, make the right uh, decision. And, and certainly uh, very thankful that, that he made that pitch back. And uh, we were just, you know, crossing our fingers and praying all the way back down the other end. <laughs>
I may actually show that highlight to, to my players because he stays on the ground on the drive. He doesn't get in the lane and just go up. He stays on the ground, pivots, finds an open man. It's such an under control play for that time, that game, that situation to be that under control to me is, is amazing. Yeah, he was uh... – as I said, he was Ivy League Player of the Year. He had a cup of coffee with the Knicks and was was uh, you know a, a kind of a fringe NBA player. He's gone on to have incredible success over in Europe. But uh, I think you know the the biggest thing was he he trusted his teammate to make the you know make the play. And I think that's a a very rare trait for for guys to you know not want to just make that hero move of you know getting up a contested shot. I think. Uh, that, that sometimes is kind of a macho thing to just go ahead and, you know, I'm going to win it or lose it on my back. But but he made the right play and he trusted his teammate to knock it down. I'm so glad we have this show for a lot of reasons, Chris de Blasio, but to hear you, Brian, give the full uh, view of that play. And Steve, as a kid, that, that countless hours of, of that shot at the top of the key or near the top of the key, because as I'm watching the highlights, I hear the announcer say, Steve Mondu Masi, like he's surprised, like, oh my God, this kid just hit a 19, 18, 19 footer. But here to hear you say that this kid put in hours and hours and hours. But you're right. He, for, for Steve at this point, he does plant his feet. It is, it, it looks like he's had about 5 million attempts at 18 feet because he was dead on the money with that. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. And, and, and uh, I know I, you know, if you look at the last, 30 seconds, you only see him take that one shot. But if you expand out and you look at the whole game or whole second half, there's actually, he makes a similar shot, I think at the same basket earlier in the second half, uh, where it's almost the same exact play where he kind of gets a pitch back and he's not even looking at his feet and he shoots a three well behind the three point line. And he was a guy who never shot threes. You know, he just happened to find himself that you know that part of the floor and he catches it and buries it and and so you know we're thinking all along you know he he's got a confident stroke he he had just hit from that spot even further back earlier in the half uh so yeah we while for sure you wouldn't have drawn you know you know when when we had the the timeout and we're in the huddle it's not like we're thinking sure let's draw up an 18 footer for our center <laughs> you know like that's certainly not on anybody's mind uh but at the same time we trusted that he was going to put himself in a spot to to make a confident in rhythm shot and, and he did that and you know that's that's the type of play that it will be on our locker room and in our highlights uh forever and that's kind of what's so great about college basketball is you get these incredible stories uh, that, that kind of take on a life of their own. And, and when you bring a recruiter, a family or a fan through a, our arena, you see this giant picture of Steve Monumacy holding his follow through uh, to, you know, to win an Ivy League champion. You know, that's, that stuff's awesome. It's a huge deal, and I, it just in the middle of a pandemic too. I see a an arena or a gym full of people, and it's like, wait, they're not where? Oh, that's right. This was you know five, six, seven years ago, whatever. And it, but it, it's you're right. It's just it's so electric. That place is unbelievable. I've yet to step foot in there. I've been in Hinkle Fieldhouse. That was like my my mecca to be able to see that arena, and then uh, then watch a game there. Watch a couple of games there now. But but Palestra is on the list after all this mess is over. But anyway, go yeah, ahead. It's, uh, it, it's it's history. I mean, Kobe Bryant's playing there. There and Penn obviously had. Will Chamberlain played high school games there. 
Yeah, it's 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 amazing. I, I highly recommend it for uh, for anybody who can get a chance. But you know, I, I I have I've listened to some of the podcasts that you guys have done previously, and I I actually commend uh, you know Chris from Princeton. Most of the time, people when they talk about their greatest games, they never talk about losses. They're always talking <laughs> about wins. And and the next game after Harvard beats Yale, we. We actually lose in a hell of a game uh, against North Carolina. We lose by two. Wes Saunders actually had a, a three at the buzzer to win that just barely, you know, bricks off the back rim. Um, but, you know, it's funny. I've completely erased that game out of my memory. <laughs> and I feel like the season ended with the Ivy League title beating, uh, beating Yale at the Palestra. Well, the the Ivy League usually, for the most part, gives a gives a great showing in the uh, in the NCAA tournament. Whether it's you guys, Princeton, Yale, previously had 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 some good teams, and uh, the uh, you know people that don't think the Ivy League's good basketball are definitely mistaken about that. But, coach, we like to end here on a fun question. Oh, I just wanted to say one more thing. I'm sure Chambers, uh, or not Chambers, Saunders reminds Sears that he only had 13 in that game, and and Saunders had 22. Too. Just saying. Uh, for sure, for sure. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure they're sure. playing against each other in some Euro League game, you know, <laughs> overseas, and he's he's talking smack to him. They're they're probably the two guys on the court using the word palpable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, coach, we like to end with this fun question. If I talk to a, a kid who played uh, for you at Rice and and someone who played for you this year at Harvard, what would they say is the one thing Coach Eski says all the time, that phrase you find yourself repeating? Yeah, this is the edited version, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it, I'm again, we have Frank Martin um, on the program, so if you, if we, you can, we can work some magic. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. I, you know, one of the things I always talk to our, our guys about is don't be in the gray area. Uh, and it's, and that's kind of offense and defense, but like, if you're going to help go be instinctive, be decisive with it, because at least you're now giving uh, your teammates direction. If I know I'm helping, well, you know, the, my teammates are going to know they've got to drop or they got to sink, they got to fill whatever it may be. But if I'm kind of dancing back and forth, they, you know, I'm not really giving them clear direction to, to where I'm where I, what I'm doing defensively and then kind of similar on the offensive end, you know, we, we talk about spacing in the modern, you know, era in terms of basketball, are, are you cutting to the basket? Are you in the dunker spot or are you spaced out behind the three point line? We don't want you creeping inside, you know, to that 18, 20 foot, actually that exact spot that Steve on <laughs> hit that, hit that big shot on. So uh, yeah, I, I think our guys would say, uh, you're always in that gray area, that middle <laughs> ground. They, they, they give me some crap about that. <laughs> well, um, Eski, it's, it's been a, an awesome pleasure to have you here. Uh, as Chris mentioned, we'll link that, uh, those highlights in the show notes. We'll put your social media, Harper men's basketball on Twitter, all over social media. Y'all doing a great job up there. And, um, like I said, I'm, I can't wait to see a game in the palestra. And, uh, but again, can't thank you enough for coming on, on the greatest games with us today. So let's well, I go ahead. I appreciate you having me. It was great to, uh, it was great to relive that, especially during the, 
you know, what, what we've been having the last couple of months uh, for me to go back and watch some of those highlights was really, uh, was really special and fun for me. So I appreciate you guys uh, helping me relive that special moment. There you go. And again, a begrudging thanks to Bobby Siegel. <laughs> thanks, uh, Bobby. Bobby, you're the man. How would you, what we I can't this? wait till he listens to this. I'm going to get a text message immediately. Like, <laughs> screw you, F you. <laughs> We need to have Bobby Siegel on the podcast. We'll effort that. Uh, see if we can pin we, it down. We need, but, uh, then we're going to need an edit button if we have Bobby oh, for Siegel. Sure. <laughs> for sure. Well, until that time, let's go ahead and wrap this one up. For my co-host, Chris de Blasio, I'm Brian Rosefield. And thank you for listening to this episode of The Greatest Games.